Right, and good evening, Whitewater. Man, it is so good, as always, to be back with you. Thank you for continuing to invite me back. I think that's a good sign. And um, tonight, it is my pleasure to actually finish for you a sermon series that you guys have been in, I think for the past four weeks called High Stakes, in which you have been studying the single most peculiar book in all the New Testament, in my humble opinion, and that is the letter that was written by Jude. Now, here's the good news, though, about Jude. At the end of Jude, he saves, in my opinion, the best for last. And they've left me these best passages right here at the end that I get to unpack for you. And the reason why I think they are so best, they are so good, is because there are a few passages in all the scriptures that speak a message that is more relevant to where we are at today as a nation and where you and I are at today in our personal relationships. See, here's what this, uh, this end of Jude is all about. It teaches us how to love uh, those who are uh, outsiders, those who are the other, those who are the doubters and the sinners in our lives, those who are the enemies in our lives, the other church, the de-churched, the unchurched, this passage teaches us how to love across separation, how to love across sin, how to love across division. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in the United States of America today. And, uh, and this may be the most divided version of our country in recent history. We are divided on all fronts. I've just made a small list for you, but there's more beyond this. We're divided in terms of politics, I mean, you've just seen the news this week. There's the left and the right. There's the Trump and the never Trump camp. It's interesting. I saw a research study uh, recently. We're not just divided ideologically when it comes to politics. We're actually now pulling ourselves apart geographically because of politics. Um, so I read this. It says studies show that we basically live in two different worlds now than those who are political or others. Most liberal Americans are concentrated in 146 urban counties, while conservatives are concentrated in largely suburban and rural areas. Studies show we watch different news stations, read different books, listen to different music, watch different shows, celebrate holidays, traditions, and national symbols completely differently. We attend different churches, and we see different media and ads because thanks to big data today, they make sure you live in your nice little echo chamber. We're not just divided politically, we're divided along denominational lines every single week. If you run in the Christian world, there's some new theological debate that's popping up. We're divided religiously. This is the most pluralistic version of America ever. I mean, just, just look around. This is not a Christian nation anymore. There's lots of Christian, uh, Christians in our nation, I can promise you that. But while Christianity used to be the American option, it seems like today it's just another option in America. We're divided along generational lines. Can, can I talk about that one for a sec? Because this is a pet peeve for me. Can, can we talk about this? Okay. It's Thursday night. You've got nowhere to be. Uh, I don't, we don't have a next service after this. So, so here's the deal. Um, I believe that when it comes to generational division, there are two great myths that every young and every old generation believes. First, for, for the younger generation... We all tend to believe what I would call the myth of progress. And older folks in the room, I'm not gonna tell you who's older in the room, ask your kids, they'll tell you. But for the older folks in the room, uh, I would just go and tell you that when you were younger, you actually believed this as well. All young people believe this myth called the myth of progress. The myth of progress. It's this idea that we're bringing the world into its paradise, into its Edenic state. 
We're moving out of the archaic insolence of our fathers and grandfathers. Okay, you guys had yearbooks, we have Facebook. Y'all had you know, snail mail, we have email. Y'all have encyclopedias, but we got Google, y'all, because we're the hashtag millennials, hashtag living the dream, hashtag YOLO, hashtag, hashtag. This is what we believe. Now, uh, if, if you are a young person in this room, though, and you have caught this vision of the myth of progress, I just want to go ahead and tell you that it is, in fact, that it's a myth. New does not necessarily mean better. New does not necessarily mean better. Let me say that one more time. New does not necessarily mean better. I mean, last time I checked, Jesus' teachings are like 2,000 years old, and they're the best thing on the market, right? So new does not necessarily mean better. Now, before I get too many amens, though, from the older people in the crowd, let me just go ahead and tell you that you believe a myth as well, because every older generation believes this myth. You know what the older generation's myth is? It's the myth of the good old days. (laughs) The good old days that ain't ever coming back, by the way when life was good and people believed in God and hard work. Now, here's what I'll give you. I I believe without a doubt that we have lost some old fashioned virtues and values that seem to me more common back then than they are today that I wish we could capture and bring back. However, what I have found is that because of this good old days mindset, every older generation tends to demonize the younger generation. No wonder the younger generation never wants to listen to the older generation. They desperately need mentors, spiritual fathers and mothers in their life, but they don't want to listen because the older generation's constantly telling them, you're taking this world and this country and this culture and this city and this church and this house to hell in a handbasket. Who would want to listen to that? Generation after generation, the older generation beats the younger generation up. I'll give you an example. This is what boomers are saying about millennials today. Uh, You can put that quote back up there. Uh, They have trouble making decisions. They would rather hike in the Himalayas than climb the corporate stepladder. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is as short as one's zap of a TV dial. Said Time Magazine in 1990, wait just a minute. That was 30 years ago. Well, we're supposed to be talking about the millennials, okay? So let's forget about the Gen Xers. This This is what's being said about the millennials today. Uh, It says, the now generation has become the me generation, said the New York Times in 1976. So wait, hold on. This was about the boomers. Okay, now I thought it was the millennials. They're the ones that are taking this world to to hell in a handbasket. So let's try this one more time. Uh, Next slide. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today, said Hesiod in the 8th century B.C., Now, are you following with me now? Okay, it almost seems as if every older generation just beats up on the younger generation, and thus there is a division. And man, I think that there could be nothing more healing and powerful for the church than if we could bridge the divide across generation. Back to our list. There are more divisions that I'm sure you guys have experienced. We're divided along gender lines, race lines, ethnic lines, uh, national lines, along wealth lines, and all those are on absolute fire right now in terms of the political realm, and they will only blaze hotter over the next year as we move to November 2020. But thank God, look at how divided we are, y'all, but thank God, he gives us a fresh word on this from Jude. Now, uh, here's what I want to do. I actually want to read this passage from Jude. 
together tonight. It's only about four or five verses. We're gonna do a corporate reading. So actually, will you go ahead and stand with me, if you will? Just stand with me. Just out of respect for the word of God. If you don't respect the word of God, that's fine. You don't need to stand. You can sit or you can just stand out of respect for your Christian neighbors and friends who invited you tonight. But we're gonna read this together. I'll read the part in white. You guys read the highlighted part. And, um, and as we're reading, I want you to notice the insight that Jude gets us about bridging the gap across division. Now, let me give you one little historical piece of information. Jude is very, very specific when it comes to what gap he's calling us to bridge here, what division he's dealing with. He's dealing with false teachers in his church. So one, it's a theological division. But two, it's a family division because these false teachers have started to lead some astray who were in the church. And back then the church was a family unit. They met in households, 30 to 40 people big. They shared their homes, they shared their stuff, they shared everything. So when someone left the church, it was like losing a brother, losing a sister. These were family divisions, theological divisions. And that's what Jude addresses. We're gonna make broader application than that. But let's read it together. I got the white part, you got the yellow. Ready? This is what Jude writes. He says, but remember, dear friends, that the apostles of our master Jesus Christ told us this would happen. Mm. Next slide. These are the ones who split churches, thinking only of themselves. There's nothing to them, no sign of the spirit. But you, dear friends, This is the unending life, the real life, the eternal life. Go easy on those. Go after those. Be tender with sinners. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Love Eugene Peterson's translation of that passage. Now, I believe that from this passage, we learn three things about loving across division. Three things, this is what he teaches us. One, he teaches us where we should find our enemy. He's very clear on this. Two, he teaches us how we should handle an enemy. And three, he teaches us who is really the enemy. Three point sermon, surprise, surprise, and that's what I wanna walk you through tonight. Where, how, and who. Let's start from the beginning first. Where we should uh, find our enemy. Now, according to Jude, did anybody notice, where exactly should you locate the lost in your life? Where should you locate the outsider? Where should you locate the other? Where do you find an enemy? Did anyone notice? Well, according to Jude, it should be right in the center of your life. That's where. You've ever heard the phrase, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. This is basically what Jude teaches us here. Back to the passage. I've actually broke it up here in three little short pithy phrases. The numbers are mine, but the scripture is actually Jude's. He says, go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. Now you tell me, can you do number one from a distance? Can you do number two outside of the context of a loving pursuit, a loving relationship with someone else? Can you do number three? from a distance? The answer is no. 
Come on, y'all. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being right in the middle of your life and one being out of your life, where does Jude call you to take your enemies and put them? Take those who've betrayed you, who've walked out on you. Take those who believe different than you and put them. And he tells you to put your enemy right in the center of your life. Our enemies should be in our homes, around our dinner tables, in our hangouts, in our gyms, in our parties. They should be in our workplaces and on our org charts, in our dorm rooms and in our schools. They should be on our kids' t-ball teams and in our kids' classrooms and at our kids' sleepovers. They should be in our text messages, on our calendars, our Facebook friends and our Twitter followers. Our enemies should be on our Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and they certainly should be invited into our Sundays because this is exactly where Jude tells us they should be, they should be found. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you for a second, though, honest moment of confession. That does not come naturally to me. To surround myself with my enemies, with people who are different than me. Okay, that does not come natural. And it's not easy either, by the way, because if they're your enemy or they're different, they don't wanna be around you either, right? So it's just like, it's, it's a hard thing to do. You know what I tend to do? My natural inclination when I walk into the room is to, is to go towards one of three different kinds of people. I go towards people who like me, I go towards people who are like me, or I go towards people who I want to be like. That's my natural inclination, and I bet you it's yours too. But sadly, that's not what Jude calls us to, and that's not Jesus's natural inclination. One thing I've noticed about Jesus just studying his life, my entire life, is that he has a different knee-jerk, instinctual response to life. You ever notice? And the people he surrounds himself with, it's just outrageous. So Jesus had a really, really hardcore but soft edges. So anyone could get in his circle. No one left his circle without having a prophetic word spoken to them, but anyone could get in. And so he was constantly surrounded with the strangest, most offensive, most sinful, most violent people there were. I made just a short list of those for you, and I think some of these are kind of fun. First, Jesus surrounded himself with the ordinary, everyday nobody. Did you know that? The first, he, uh, the first people he called to be his disciples were two guys named Peter and Andrew. And you know who Peter and Andrew were? They were nobodies. They were blue-collar fishermen from a redneck part of the world called Galilee. And yet Jesus doesn't just call them to be disciples, he calls them to be two of the 12 disciples. Eventually, he's gonna hand the leadership of the church off to these two. One of them is gonna like run the show. Now you would think that if Jesus was gonna like set up the church and his leadership, he would have picked the best. He would have picked the most charismatic or the smartest or the wealthiest or the most influential, those who had real power. But that's not what he chose. He chose a bunch of nobodies. And you know what? That's encouraging for me because if he chose them, he'd choose me. He'd probably choose you too. Hey, do you believe you're a nobody? Is that what your dad told you growing up? You spent your entire life trying to prove him wrong? Is that what your wife told you before she walked out with the kids? Are you below average? Is that what your resume says? Is that how you feel right now at your midlife crisis? I want you to know that if that's you and you feel like that's where you're at today, you have a tremendous invitation from Jesus because you know what he said to Peter and Andrew? He extended his hand and he said, follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. And that purpose right there, my friends, 
has an eternal significance that 100 billion years from now we'll still be talking about. And it's for you. He invites the everyday nobody in his circle. Also invites the small town racist, this guy named Nathaniel. You guys remember him? So, so Philip, his friend, walks up to Nathaniel. He says, Nathaniel, I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, what's his name? Jesus, where's he from? Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, let me stop you right there because Nazareth, really? Nazareth? What good thing could ever come from that part of town? Have you been over there? Have you seen those people? Nazareth? This was in Nathaniel's heart. And yet, know how Jesus rolls? When Jesus walks up to Nathaniel, he doesn't say, you've committed the unforgivable sin. He doesn't say, get out of my face or I don't want anything to do with you. He extends an invitation once again. And what does he say to him? Does anybody know? He says, just come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And I think he would issue the same invitation to any of you today. I know we've got people in this room who struggle with prejudice or racism. You probably wouldn't admit it. But man, in your quiet moments, there are certain people who you're uncomfortable with because of their cultural background, the color of their skin, whatever it may be. I want you to know that we have no tolerance for that at this church, but at the same time, we wanna see that healed at this church. So you are invited to find healing here. Jesus wants you in his circle. He also invites the self-righteous Pharisee. John chapter three, there's this guy named Nicodemus who rolls up on him. Now, let me tell you about Pharisees. Pharisees thought that honoring God was honoring the law, right? Honoring God was honoring the law. So they were absolutely obsessed with the law. Here's how you know if you're a Pharisee today. You tend to respond in really one of two ways to God. You either constantly feel guilty because you're so obsessed with the law that you realize you can never measure up to it, or you constantly feel kind of smug because you actually do feel like you measure up to it. So you're looking down your nose at everybody else like, look at poor them, they sinners, you know, not like me. Okay, and here's the deal. Both of them are terrible places to live. And I'm not real sure which place Nicodemus found himself in, but I do know the invitation Jesus gave to him. Do you know what he invi- how he invited Nicodemus? He says, come and be born again. Find real freedom. But in my kingdom, we don't love the law. We have a law of love. And man, that would change the game. Same invitation for any self-righteous Pharisee in this room today. I, mean, I could go on and on and on and on with who he brought in his circle. A Samaritan woman who had a spiritual stigma, social stigma, Samaritan stigma, and by the way, she was a woman. But Jesus ministers to her, teaches her, and then he goes to her hometown with her, and for the next two days, they evangelize everybody. He invites the political fundamentalist into his crew. It says that there was a guy in Jesus' circle called Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? It's basically a jihad warrior, a holy warrior, someone who thought violence was the answer to purify the world for God's kingdom. There was this one group of zealots back then called the Sakari during Jesus' time because they, 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 they were the dagger men. That's what they're known by because they would carry daggers under their cloak and make political assassinations. They killed the high priest once. And yet Jesus invites Simon the zealot in his circle 
You better believe Jesus constantly invited little children in his circle. Every gospel tells us he had a soft spot for them. He invites the sick and suffering into his, uh, into his circle because dirty hands, pure heart, that's how Jesus rolled. He invited the forgotten and the invisible into his circle because Jesus said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. He invited the sexual sinner into his circle. You remember John chapter eight when the woman's caught in adultery and they're about to stone her and Jesus stops the stoning and everybody drops the stones and Jesus looks at her and says, has nobody got a stone to throw at you? Neither do I. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He invites the grieving into his circle as he weeps with one of his close friends at the death of a mutual friend. He invites a betrayer into his circle as he washes Judas's feet moments before he walks out the door and hands him over to die. He invites doubters into his circle as he walks up to Thomas and he says, man, come on, stick, stick your hands in my scars. Go ahead. If that's what it takes, T, to get you on the same level here, we got to get you on the same page as everybody else because we got a kingdom to build. And oh, this is my favorite part about Jesus. He didn't just invite the lost into his circle. He pursues the lost and brings them in to his circle. You read Luke 15, right? I know if you've been around this church long, you've read Luke 15. Three amazing parables, Jesus says. The first one's this parable of a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one that is lost. And when he finds it, puts it on his shoulder and he says, we gotta celebrate because that which was lost is now found. He says, there's another time where this woman lost one of her coins and she turned her house upside down to find that she was turning over pillows, like looking under the rug in the closet. When she found the coin, she said, look, y'all come over. We got to celebrate because that which was lost is now found. Love the third story though. It's the story of the lost son. The son betrays his father, tells him you're dead to me, takes half of everything his father owns and goes off to a far off land, spends it all wastes it living the prodigal life. His dad thinks he's dead. But then all of a sudden one day, dad sees his boy in the distance, walking over the hillside. And you know what dad does? Takes off and he runs to him. And as he's running, he yells back, kill the fattened calf, get my robe, get my ring, get my sandals ready because my son is back. He who is dead is now alive. He who is lost is now found. And that's who belongs in Jesus' circle. That's how he rolls. That's who he brings in to his loving embrace. And so that's who we should bring in, y'all. There's this interesting word in the New Testament. It's used twice. You may have never heard it before. It's this Greek word, philozania. Have you heard it? Philozania. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul uses it when he says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. And always be eager to practice hospitality, or the Greek word there, philozania. So the first thing Paul says here is he says, help the insiders. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the second thing he says is, be ready to help the outsiders. Because philo is the Greek word for love, and zania is the Greek word for outsider, or other, or foreigner, or enemy. Could have been used synonymously in any of those contexts. He calls us to enemy love. It's used in even more of an interesting way in Hebrews 13 where the author says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, or that's the Greek word, philozania. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Isn't that cool? Now, I don't, it's beyond the scope of this sermon to explain everything the Bible says about angels and demons, because it's, it's a lot. But here's one thing the author of Hebrews guarantees us. He says, perhaps, just perhaps, your best chance of meeting an angel this side of heaven is what? Entertaining the stranger, entertaining the outsider, embracing the other or the enemy. What dignity God gives to them 
Do we give that dignity to them as well? You know where the enemy belongs, Jude tells us, right in the middle of our attention, right in the middle of our lives. That's point number one. That was the most important one. We'll fly through the second two. Second, uh, how we should handle an enemy, how we should handle an enemy. Uh, well, let's go back to the passage here. And again, I've broke it up in a little bit of a strange way. Last time I gave it numbers, this time I've put it into two different columns. You can go to the next slide here. Uh, so what does Jude say? He says, go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. Now, do you notice something interesting about this verse? It's like a walking contradiction, if you will. Do you notice? Or, or perhaps I could say it like this. It has this amazing balance. There's this easiness to it, this loving pursuit built into it, this tenderness that it calls us to. But at the same time, there's a hardness. There's a truth about it. It calls a sin a sin, right? Or do you know, do you know how Jude tells us to handle the enemy? Well, with both with both love and truth. Now, if you've ever heard me preach before, you probably know this is a pet peeve of mine. I can't get on a stage more than two or three times without talking about this, without talking about the importance of modeling truth and love. Again, this is how Jesus operated. Soft edges, hardcore, right? And this is how we should operate. And I think we could gain influence 5X in our country if Christians just became experts at speaking truth and love. You need both, right? Because truth without love... No matter how true it is, no matter how clear you are, no matter how many biblical references you have, no matter how loud you yell it or if you type it in all caps on Facebook, it doesn't matter. No matter how true it is, if it has no love, it will not be heard because you're a butthead. <laughs> and that's what people think. Paul had this interesting way of saying it. Can I do this? I didn't even plan to do this, but I saw this coming out. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, you could speak with the tongues of human beings or of angels. What, what's an angel tongue? I don't really know beyond the scope of this sermon, but it sounds cool, right? He could say, you can speak with the tongue of angels, but if you have no love, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like this right here. Can you really hear what I'm saying right now? You guys can tell it's Jen Kennedy. Could you hear anything I just said? Yeah, that's the point, right? And that's what truth without love sounds like. Now on the flip side, love without truth, that's no better because it's not love at all. It's enablement. And man, do we have an enabling problem in our culture today, big time. One of the cultural messages that disciples the imaginations of our young people every single day is this message that says, follow your heart, do what you feel. I think, okay, you laugh, I think that's what the prophet Jeremiah would do. In Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is actually deceitful beyond anything else. What are we gonna do? That's what Jeremiah says. And yet we tell, okay, we've got a bunch of people out there who are first 90% friends, right? They'll love you the first 90, but when it comes to speaking the last 10%, they won't do it. They'll just say, follow your heart, do what you feel all the way into your own self-destruction. Man, that's not a friend, that's an enabler. That's love without truth and it's not love. It's not the self-sacrificial love of Jesus that's willing to lay down everything in order to see the best for even an enemy. So we need truth in love. And man, it's a hard, hard balance to strike. So I wanna give you a little practical uh, 
little practical application here, all right? I wanna encourage you this week on this to pray differently. I think that's the key, pray differently. All right, so get in your head right now, just get in your head um, a name, a face of someone who you would consider like an enemy, an outsider, someone who's lost or maybe left the church, someone who fits this category, right? Get in, I want a name in your head right now. Can you get it? Take a second. I'll get some more water. All right, you got it? You got it? Okay. Now here's how I want you to pray for them this week. Rather than saying, God, make them, I want you to start praying about this relationship. God, help me. Now, when it comes to to people who are on that other side of the line of division, we're really good at saying, God, make them. God, make them straighten up. God, make them repent. God, just make them shut up. Like, these are the kind of prayers we pray, right? But those are the wrong sort of prayers. Because when you say, God, make them, one, one, you're putting all the responsibility on God, and two, you're putting all the blame on them. But Jude does not let us off that easy, does he? He tells us that we should be going after, that we should be tender with, that we should be going easy on, going, 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 right? That's us, we should be. So I wanna challenge you, put yourself in the prayer. God, not not God make them, God help me. Here's a few ideas. Maybe one of these will help you. God help me speak the truth with clarity, timing, authenticity, and compassion. All four words are important right there. Why don't you start praying that? Next slide. God help me see them as you see them. For some of you, the hard part about loving your enemy is that you don't like them. I get it. I get it. But there are two things that God tells us is true and that he sees in every human being. One, the image of God, which means they have eternal, inherent, undeniable dignity. And two, the love of Jesus, because Jesus died for them. God help me see them like you see them, worth dying for, even as an enemy. God help me be irresistibly different. If you surround yourself with enemies, you will have temptations in your life. Things that you will need to abstain from as a follower of Jesus. It just is what it is. In those moments, pray that you won't seem judgmental, but rather you'll seem irresistible in the way you live differently. God help me listen. Come on now, y'all. Like this is... If you want somebody to respect the words that come out of your mouth, you have to stop and respect the words that come out of theirs. You can't just talky, talky, talky. Like you gotta listen sometimes. I threw this diagram in here just because I love it. I found this last Thanksgiving. And this Thanksgiving turkey right here will help you navigate those Thanksgiving turkey conversations that you know are gonna come up with Uncle Ted when he has that extra cup of of eggnog, okay? Like just just take some advice from this. Take a picture of this. How do you see it? It's a great way to listen. I wonder if, or I'd love to hear your take on this. You make a good point, tell me more. Or my initial reaction is that all these are great ways to listen and open up civil dialogue. Here's the next one. Uh, God help me meet violence, slander, and hate with love. Some of you are in conversations with people who don't believe or have walked away from the church or who are your enemy that come at you with hatred, with slander violently and in those moments you're going to need a strength that's beyond you how about this next one Uh, god help me transform my anger into good i believe that anger can only be transformed 
That's the only way you can make anger good is if you transform it into something else, into something higher. If you internalize anger and just don't let it out, it's just gonna boil inside of you and steal your joy. If you externalize anger, it'll turn you into someone who is cruel and violent. So you gotta transform it. So transform that anger into a stubborn compassion. I'm just gonna love you. I dare you. I'm just gonna love you. The apostle Paul has something to say about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, okay, when you, when you just pour kindness out on your enemy, no matter what they do to you, it's like putting hot coals on their head. He's like, kill them with kindness. Or not kill them, we're Christians. Convince them with kindness, right? But that's what this is Paul. How about this one? God help me be graciously unassuming. Mm, Someone needs that. How about this last one? God help me forgive even if they don't deserve it or haven't asked for it. Because ultimately that's what Jesus did for us. Now that brings us to point number three. And this is the final point here. And this is, this is huge for all of us to wrap our minds around. Last, Jude tells us in this passage who the enemy really is. And this is the twist of the passage. This is the twist of the Christian worldview. And until you embrace who the enemy really is, you will never have the enemy love in your heart to be poured out on others. So so look up here now. I really need you to pay attention to this last one because you need to understand who the enemy really is. You know who the enemy really is? Yeah, you got it, sir. You got it. That's right. The enemy's you. (laughs) The enemy's me. Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul says it very clearly. He says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us who? You sinner. (laughs) I like that too much, I'm sorry. For for, He goes on uh, in verse 10, he says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we still were his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Now, what an interesting paradox of the Christian worldview. It can be so pessimistic and optimistic at the same time, or maybe pessimistic is not the best word, realistic. It gives us a realistic, sobering assessment of our own sin. We are an enemy of God. And yet at the same time, it gives us this optimistic vision of who we can become in the present and who we will be one day in the future if we just choose to live in Christ. One pastor said it like this once. He said, Jesus loves you just the way you are. That's great. So much so though, that he refuses to leave you that way. And don't you see the beauty and the reality in that? Or Jude says it like this. All right, I want you to pay close attention. He says, but you dear friends, carefully build yourselves up in this most holy faith. And look at what he says next. He says, by praying in the Holy Spirit, staying right at the center of God's love, keeping your arms open and outstretched, ready for the mercy of our master, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, the unending life, the real life. Now, do you notice a theme here? The theme is you can't do it on your own. Sure, he says, you need to be built up in the most holy faith, but you can't do it on your own. You can't even pray on your own. You certainly can't get your life on center without God's love and you will never be able to capture salvation mercy without the mercy of Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You need God. You need Jesus. You need, you need, you need. And yet the implication of this passage is that you also have the beauty of Christianity. I need, but I have 
And until you wrap your heart and your mind around that. The fact that you need that enemy love of Jesus and the fact that you have that poured into your heart, I'm telling you, you will never have the strength or the perseverance to pour it out on others. When they betray you, when they beat you, when they laugh at you or scorn you or ignore you or hide their faces from you or doubt you or crucify you, just as they did Jesus. See, as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, right? Forgive them. But can you imagine what he was seeing as he said that? I'll tell you what he was seeing. The scriptures tell us. He saw soldiers laughing and gambling rather than protecting. He saw the religious leaders of his time mocking, cursing, and shouting. He saw his family weeping, and he saw none of his disciples because they were in hiding. And you know what else I think he saw that day in the audience? I think he saw you, and I think he saw me. He saw our face. Because even as enemies, Christ died for us. I'll show you this last piece of art. This is a piece of art done by a Dutch artist from the 17th century named Rembrandt. Probably know him. Looks like most Renaissance paintings at first, kind of dark around the cross, all the other faces are dim, but if you look right in the middle, it's like there's a spotlight shown right on this 17th century man wearing 17th century clothes in a first century depiction. And you know who that man is right there? That man is Rembrandt. See, Rembrandt painted himself into the picture of the cross. Right there at the feet of Jesus where it could be no doubt that he received the mercy that comes from only the blood of Jesus. But right there at the feet of Jesus where there could be no doubt of his complicity in the act. And that's where we need to paint ourselves. We need to paint ourselves right in to the picture of the cross because it is God's compassion for us, but it is also his calling. It is his salvation, but it is also our obedience. And I can promise you this, the only way you will have the spiritual resources to love your enemy when the going gets tough is when your heart is filled with the enemy love that only Jesus can give. And so that would be my prayer over everyone in this room today, God. My prayer is that we would paint ourselves into the picture of the cross, that you would fill our hearts up with the self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love of Jesus, that we would catch a glimpse of what it looks like to love across the dividing lines that this world throws at us in the cross, and then that we would take that challenge and we would embody it in the world in a way that is irresistible. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray this, and the Holy Spirit's help that we ask. Amen. Hey guys, so glad that you joined us online today. Keep in touch in the future. Again, you can text the word NEW to the number on the screen or PRAY to the number on the screen, and we'd love to pray with you. Have a great week.